a reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 14, beginning with the first verse. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? 
I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days a year, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. The word of the Lord. Luke 11, 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and give us our sins, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet... Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for, asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, God Christ. Emmanuel Church exists uh, because the Lord Jesus Christ uh, builds his church and uh, gathers people uh, around the truth of his word and the good news that he has done everything necessary to bring us into a living relationship with his father. Um, and the Lord, to build churches, uses uh, his servants. <clears throat> and one of the servants... Uh, that the Lord used to build Christ Church and then out of Christ Church to plant and build Emmanuel Church 
uh, is John and Judy Mason. Um, some of you know John and Judy really, really well, and some of you don't know them at all, but it is a delight, John, for you to be here and to open up God's word uh, for us. And um, thank you so much for your ministry among us today and the long ministry that uh, you have faithfully served that the Lord has used to bring us to this point. So, John, will you come up and open the word for us? Thank you very much, Jim. It is indeed a privilege, a pleasure to be back here with you all again. It's never fun to stand against current opinion. People laughed when Galileo insisted that gravity attracts all bodies with the same acceleration, regardless of weight. People derided Isaac Newton when he presented the first scientific work to explain the movement of the planets and the laws of motion. People laughed at Moses when he said that God would bring out the Hebrew people from under the rule of Egypt. People laughed at Jesus when he had said he'd bring a 12-year-old girl back to life. People scorned William Wilberforce when he launched his anti-slave trade legislation in the British Parliament in 1789. People laugh today when they learn that we believe in God and go to church. A little over three millennia ago, Israel was on the southern border of ancient Canaan, poised to cross the River Jordan. Twelve spies had brought back their reports. All of them were agreed that there was prosperity in the land of Canaan. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and they had a bunch of grapes with them to prove it. But the spies were divided over the house of Israel's ability to take the land. Ten of the twelve reported that the Canaanite cities were too well defended. And they also said there were giants in the Canaanite armies, men who were the legendary sons of Anak. Uh, these sons of Anak, I might say, the kind of guys at the NBA would love to have in their teams today. But two of the 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, had produced a minority report. Yes, they agreed the odds against us in terms of science and strength are great. But we should take the step, a step of faith, and cross the Jordan. God is going to be with us. But no one listened to them. Words like fortified cities, the legendary sons of Anak, stood out in their minds. They were scared. Crossing the Jordan might be God's promise, but it was going to be at a cost. At best, lives would be lost. At worst, they could fail. Could they really trust God on the basis of this word from Moses? No, they said, we refuse. Numbers chapter 14 
tells a very sad and sorry tale of Israel's lack of trust in God. And two two questions stand out as the drama unfolds. First, why didn't Israel trust God? What did Moses' trust in God look like, is our second question. So why didn't Israel trust in God? Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 14 reads, and you've got the text in front of you, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so they said to one another, Let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. When you think about it, it's really an astonishing scene. These people had heard God's promise through Moses that the land would be theirs. They'd heard this many times. Indeed, they'd heard it only a few weeks before this when they'd stood on the slopes of Mount Sinai. Furthermore, they had experienced God's first-hand divine intervention. He'd worked ten incredible miracles to get them out of the land of Egypt. He'd guided them with cloud and fire in the wilderness. He'd provided them with food six out of every seven days each week. Yes, they did get tired of the diet, but they hadn't starved. And now they were poised at the very edge of achieving all that God had promised them. But their hearts suddenly failed them. They wept aloud. I'm sure you've noticed that they complained about their leaders. Nothing has changed, it seems. They didn't like Moses and Aaron. Why didn't you leave us in Egypt, they said. If only we'd died in the desert. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? Let's choose a leader who'll do what we want. They preferred death to all that God had done for them. They refused to trust God at his word. Now you think that Moses might have walked out on this, at this particular point and we wouldn't have blamed him if he had. If that's what you want, he might have said to them, choose a leader you like and go to hell. Instead, both Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. No, they hadn't collapsed. They were grieved and heartbroken for the people. They were praying for these very people who had so shamelessly rejected God. And as for Caleb and Joshua, I'm sure you've noticed, they actually ripped their clothes. It was a sign of their frustration and anger over Israel's faithlessness. But the Lord is with us. Do not fear, they said. This fact that God was with them was greater than any opposition 
Caleb, Joshua feared. He had chosen them and made a special covenant commitment with them. The underlying theme bubbling through this chapter is that God always keeps his promise. Why wouldn't he be keeping his promise at this particular point? Success that they'd had in the past had always depended upon God's intervention and not the strength of the armies of Israel. In fact, the word Hebrew literally means rabble. They were slaves in Egypt. They had no forces to get them out from that slavery out of Egypt. But I'm sure you've noticed what the people plan to do with Caleb and Joshua. It's there in verse 10. The whole congregation threatened to stone them. Lack of faith amongst people who call themselves religious can sometimes result in very vicious behaviour. In the New Testament, we read in Acts chapter 7 that when Stephen spoke out in court <coughs> before the Jewish leaders about Jesus being God's Messiah, the Jewish religious leaders had had them stoned to death. In 1557, Archbishop Thomas Cramner in England was burned at the stake in Oxford when he stood firm for the biblical teaching that Jesus' death was the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And Cramner taught that anyone who turned to Christ in repentance and in faith would be saved. He also insisted with the leaders around him, our works can never save us. We can't even contribute to restoring our broken relationship with God. But the religious leaders of Cramner's day didn't like to hear that. And so they burned him at the stake in Oxford. Faithful ministers and God's people down through the ages have all too often encountered the sheer anger the vindictiveness and spite of people who sometimes call themselves religious, but who lack the eye and faith and biblical understanding. They don't trust the God of the Bible. Sometimes it's church leaders who arrogantly patronize those who insist upon the fundamentals of the essentials of faith. These people reject the authority of the Bible as God's unique self-revelation written down. They deny the miracles of Jesus. They, in fact, deny the divinity of Jesus. They deny his physical resurrection from the dead. They ridicule the idea that Jesus offered his life as the all-sufficient sacrifice for sins of the whole world when he died. Some years ago, I met a professor of literature from China. He was professor at one of China's leading universities. And he told me his story. On June 4, 1989, he was there in Tiananmen Square. 
He was one of the protesters calling for democracy in China. And he said to me, when I saw the guns of the people's army turned on the people, Marxism and Maoism within me died. I knew if there was such a thing as truth, it had to come from beyond human invention. And he said that night, I went home and I pulled down a book I'd been given when I was a teenager. He said I'd never read it. I just tossed it at the back of my bookshelves. But that night I pulled it out and I read it. And as I read, I couldn't put it down. It was a New Testament. He said, I read it from cover to cover. Not just once, but twice. And then three times. I realized that I was reading something that was not human invention. And as the dawn broke, he said, I went out to find people I knew who were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marxism, Maoism, socialism, communism, for him, died that day and that night as he came across, stumbled across, you might say, in the providence of God, the truth of God. You know, people today sneer at the heritage of this country, which part of its origins were found in the Judeo-Christian ethic. People today sneer that the New Testament calls upon us to turn to Jesus Christ as the Lord. People might laugh when we say that God is still committed to doing his good work for his people and indeed for this land and for the Western world and for the world as a whole. That God continues to use his people doing seemingly impossible things such as providing resources to build churches like Emmanuel, to build schools that honour the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to provide for the medical needs of the sick and the hungry in countries that are impoverished. Because God is a God of compassion. You see what's happening in the Western world today. Lack of faith is more interested in what it thinks than in the truth. Human reason becomes the arbiter and the determiner of truth. Lack of faith is more interested in self-preservation, more interested in self-aggrandizement than trusting God. So what did God do? back in the days of Israel. Well, look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've been doing among them? 
I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. Uh, Friends, these are chilling words, are they not? They tell us that lack of trust in God's word ultimately brings down God's condemnation. But the narrative doesn't stop there. For in the second part of verse 12, we're told of God's intention. His intention is to make Moses the father of a nation greater and mightier than they. So God's judgment on faithless Israel must have seemed an extraordinarily attractive offer to Moses. He could be rid of this fickle crowd once and for all. What a wonderful thought. But look what he did. He prayed for Israel. It's there in verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. Well, this brings us to our second question. What did Moses' trust in God look like? It's very important to look carefully at his prayer. Notice that Moses doesn't make excuses for Israel. He doesn't plead any mitigating circumstances or diminished responsibility. The whole prayer is an appeal to the character of God. God is a God of integrity. God is good. He's got enormous power at his fingertips. But also he is a God of compassion. Look at verse 13. In your might and power you brought these people from Egypt. And Moses went on. What about your commitment, Lord? Second part of verse 14. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. And you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Lord, aren't you a God of your word? And Moses continued, what will the nations think? It's there in verse 15. If you kill this people all at one time, then the nations who have heard about you will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. What are others going to think? You make a promise about inheriting, they're inheriting a land, but you can't keep it, can you, God? That's what they'll say. The nations will think you're just like any other God, fickle and incapable. But there's something even more significant. Moses appeals to the sheer possessiveness of God's unchangeable, all-compassionate love. It's there in verse 17. And now, therefore, let the power of the Lord be great in a way that you promised when you spoke, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. And look at verse 19. Forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt even until now. Just look at the emphasis of those second-person pronouns. As you declared, your great love, 
you have pardoned. It won't be just them you are depriving if you, des if you destroy them, Lord. You will be depriving yourself, your reputation, your honour, your promises. You know, when we think about it, there's something very moving about this prayer. Here is one man, a single individual with the fate of a whole nation, hinging on this exchange. It seems so impossible. How can the faith and the private prayer of any man or woman possibly have such momentous significance? And yet the Bible is telling us it can. Israel survived. We see here why it is that we can have every reason to be confident when we pray to God. It's because of who God is and what he's like. I'm sure you noticed as we read Luke chapter 11 what Jesus was promising his disciples. The centre of his words about prayer in that chapter are back in verses 9 and 10. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Three memorable promises that our English word ask help us to remember. A for ask, S for seek, K for knock. And yet so often we forget or we don't trust God. These words of Jesus are not just to his people, but I suggest they are to anyone who is in a conversation with them about the matters of faith. And they tell us they find it hard to make a step of commitment to the Lord Jesus. And over and over again throughout the years I've said, ask God. Say to him, if you're there, help me find you. Answer my prayer. Seek and you'll find him. Knock on God's door. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust God at his word? It's all bound up in the word ask. So true prayer begins not with praising and worshipping God at a distance, but in the confidence that God is approachable and trustworthy. Yes, he is the transcendent God. He is the Lord of all things, but is much closer than we all too often realise. Israel survived because Moses knew these qualities of God. He understood that he could beg for God's mercy because God had made a covenant with his people. He knew that God was a God of his word, that he did keep his promises. Above all, he knew that God is a God of mercy. When out of Christ Church we launched this particular congregation, we prayed. And I took hold of Jesus' words 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not stand against it. Moses knew that he could beg for God's mercy because God had made a covenant in the same way that Jesus makes a new covenant with us today. Moses' faith and trust was grounded in his understanding of the character of God. When we grow in the riches of our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, so too our trust and our confidence can grow. So what does all this tell you and me today? It tells us that we should not look so much at Moses and his faith, but rather look to the God to whom Moses was praying. The drama of Numbers chapter 14 compels us to ask ourselves, who is this God? Well, Numbers and the rest of the Bible is telling us that God is in control of the course of history. God is God who always keeps his word. He is just, compassionate. So what was the outcome of Moses' prayer? God changed the course of Israel's history. Yes, God did judge his people, as we learn, but his judgment was tempered with mercy. He didn't wipe Israel out. He kept his promise. The faithless generation was destined to die without seeing the promise fulfilled. They were forgiven in their relationship with the Lord, but they did not live to enjoy the blessing. That day would come when their children had grown up. Israel's faith in God had failed when she was in the very threshold of success. I wonder how often we as individuals and as a church have missed seeing and enjoying God's goodness because of lack of trust in him. We need to think about this. How many times have you asked yourself whether you can trust God and when it comes to the matter of prayer, how often have you found yourself wrestling with the understanding of God, your confidence of God? You see, prayer calls on us to trust God at his word. And sometimes we can find that very hard, can't we? And there's another important point here. Prayer requires a maturity that not only trusts God at his word, but challenges us to understand what God promises us today. For we live under a very different covenant from the one at the time of Moses. God doesn't promise to give us land or material wealth, but he does promise us the forgive, a forgiveness in our own lives, a complete cleansing, and he does promise us a future. He promises us to be with us and provide what we need for as long as we need it. And all of that, of course, requires faith. We live in the age of the Messiah, the age of Jesus Christ. We've not yet seen him face to face, but God wants us to pay very careful attention to him. It means asking, who is this man Jesus? 
How should I relate to him? What does he want me to do with my life? What priorities does he want me to adopt? And when it comes to praying, what do you pray? Do you pray not just for yourself, but for others? Not just for your own physical well-being? God bless me, God bless my family. But do you also pray for the spiritual well-being of others? In every age, in every city, there are thousands who are waiting to hear God's news. I'm told that 20% of the non-church-going population here in New York would respond to go to a church if they were invited. That's one in five. Are you praying? Praying perhaps for five people. One of those five might be one of those 20% who will willingly, gratefully, gladly accept the invitation to come to church. Are you trusting that God will answer the your prayer? That God is in the business of seeing lives transformed, not just now, but forever. You see, prayer for the city is a great idea, but it's abstract and impersonal. What if every one of you here today committed to pray for five people you know in the city, would your prayers make a difference? My answer is a very definite yes. Why? Well, because God promises. Blaise Pascal, the 17th, French, 17th century French mathematician and philosopher said, God instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. Pascal knew his Bible. So we might ask ourselves, what happens if God's people don't pray? Is our God too small when it comes to the subject of prayer? The God of the Bible is a big God. And because he's a God of honor, justice, and compassion, nothing is too small or too big for him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.